Father, I, I know what you have laid on my heart to say tonight, and I, I pray, um, I pray it would be your heart. I trust that it is, but I ask that your spirit would continue to, to edit and, and to teach me how to be faithful um, as I stand up here and speak. I, I know for sure that if anybody in this room um, cares more about right and wrong, cares more about liberties and rights, cares more about drinking or not drinking than about the one who paid it all, I know none of this stuff will make sense. I pray your spirit would be at work. I'm sure you want to do this. I just also know um, that you ask us to open ourselves up to what your spirit is doing. And I pray that people would. And I pray that you would move and open people's minds and hearts that there would be a renewal of our minds that we would um, long to have you search us and know us, to find any single way in us that is against your will, and that you would lead us in an everlasting way. I pray that you would do that tonight. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. Daniel, would you do me a favor and put up Romans 12 too? I have no idea if I'm going to go in the order of what I sent you earlier. I'm really sorry about that. Um, it's my fault if there's like hiccups and stuff uh, up here. Um, Romans 12, 2. Um, th this uh, is what all of tonight is about. Um, if this is all you remember, that would be fantastic. Um, it's actually going to kick off our next sermon series, which starts next week too. Um, do not be conformed uh, to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is it that I have to tell you about drinking tonight? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might be able to discern the will of God, that you would know what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. That's it. I'm going to be... Um, sharing with you a couple personal stories uh, of drunkenness. Um, and um, some of you might be really uncomfortable with that. Uh, some of you might love it or something. In, in either case, um, my, my, my hope is not, uh, although I will talk very specifically about this, my hope is not that in my stories you see liberty to go and do the same things I do um, or that you just outright reject me for some sins that I've committed my, my hope is that you know the word of God um, through what I'm talking about tonight. There's a lot of scriptures about drinking. I'm talking about more scripture than I ever have on a Tuesday night, but I'm gonna go like fast in a good way, I hope. Um, a good and acceptable and perfect way, if you were listening. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> but I also, um, I, I want you to be able, um, by the end of this night, I'm hoping that I can convince you um, to desire. I'm hoping the spirit of God would be at work to help you desire to think clearly about everything, about everything in life. Before I um, tell you some stories, it's, it's a, lot brief, a lot more brief and um, a little easier. I think if I just play you a video, some of you may have seen it, the, the people that make these videos I think are fantastic. Um, but this is just is sort of a very brief two minute thing. What is alcohol? What does it do? I'm assuming most of you know, but if you've never heard, this is two minutes instead of like 17 that it would take me. Um, so would you play that real quick? What is alcohol? Alcohol, one of the most commonly used and abused drugs in the world, comes in a variety of forms and does one thing quickly and well. It changes the way you feel. 
But to what do we owe these feelings of release and freedom? How could the ingestion of one simple substance so drastically change not only your actions, but thoughts and perception? As alcohol enters the body and makes its way to your brain, it begins to interact with your neurons or brain cells. In our previous video on marijuana, which you can click here, we explain the actions of neurons and their chemical messengers called neurotransmitters. But there are two main types of neurotransmitters that these neurons use to communicate or send electrical signals. Excitatory neurons use glutamate, while inhibitory neurons use GABA, the yin and yang if you will. Much like the zeros and ones of a computer, these two messengers have contrasting roles. Glutamate begins a wave of excitation, while GABA not only inhibits this flow, but helps to organize and differentiate the results in your brain. And just like a computer, these signals can be combined in enormous complexity to form actions and thoughts. So how does alcohol affect these two signals? Turns out, it suppresses glutamate transmission and enhances GABA transmission, so you get less excitation and more inhibition. And because glutamate sites become less effective, information flow becomes slow and only the largest signals can make it through. This means you feel less, perceive less, notice less, and remember less. In conjunction, the increased GABA hushes the excessive background noise of activity, fine-tuning and clarifying your thoughts, but to an excessive degree. This is why you may have heard that alcohol is a depressant. But inhibition of your neurons is not the same as social inhibition. Instead, it simply cleans up and removes extraneous activity by removing less significant excitation. Without normal GABA transmission, the excessive excitatory action would resemble an epileptic seizure. There would be no clarity of thought. While drunk, your GABA channels are wide opened. Combined with the lack of glutamate, you begin to think very little, but with great clarity. It's what causes the momentous attitude of a drunk, often repeating the same idea or proclamation over and over thinking clearly about almost nothing. Hmm. Got a burning question you want answered? Ask it in the comments or on Facebook and Twitter. All right. Uh, so I didn't grow up um, in, in a very religious context. I didn't know much about alcohol. Um, I didn't, actually, I didn't have many experiences really negative or positive either way regarding alcohol. Um, <clears throat> the first time I ever remember even seeing alcohol, well, I remember my, I guess I remember my grandfather uh, who didn't drink, he drank um, O'Doul's, like uh, alcohol-less beer. Um, and I drank one with him when I was like 10, um, I, I, whatever. It doesn't do much to you, I think, I don't know. Um, I don't remember that being significant either way. I thought it tasted bad. Um, when I, I, me I, I met my father when I was 12, um, I hadn't known him before that. And when I moved in with him, my, my dad, and still to this day, drinks a lot. Like he always has a full bar spread. Um, some of his friends know him from being able to take like a ton of alcohol. Um, I had seen him drunk only in like party settings, like New Year's and these sorts of things, but he was never bad. Like he was never mean or never really a fully different guy. I mean, he was a little sillier, I suppose. Um, but he never was abusive or he didn't shut down. Um, he also didn't seem to like go hide and drink at all. Um, and he didn't just get drunk on a regular basis ever. Um, and so I, I didn't think anything of it. Nobody around me ever said alcohol's bad or you shouldn't get drunk. Like, I just didn't think anything of it. Um, uh, it also wasn't that appealing for me either. I didn't have a group of friends that were all sneaking alcohol at young ages either. But um, my junior year in college, uh, I got drunk for the very first time. And it was, pr God, it probably was even the first time I'd had alcohol outside of my house, like, um, ever. Uh, I think my, my dad would say you could have wine at dinner or something. I never did because I didn't think it tasted good. Um, so I was pretty neutral on the whole thing. Um, I'd see people make some stupid decisions, but I didn't really know what that was about. But I was camping uh, <clears throat> with some friends my junior year of, of high school. I don't know if I said college. I meant high school. Um, and 
I was drinking <laughs> Coke, and if you know anything about this, is terrible. I didn't know any better. I was drinking Coke and Bacardi 151, uh, which is essentially rubbing alcohol with higher alcohol content uh, or something. Um, it's, it's terrible tasting. And um, I, I got really, really drunk off that, which you do quickly on Bacardi 151 or Everclear, either the same thing. Um, and, uh, and there was a girl, um, always a girl. Uh, there was a girl... Um, that I was sitting next to, um, or closer than that, even maybe, um, and uh, who a very beautiful girl. Um, I I thought the world of her. She was a good friend of mine. Um, I think I knew going into that night. I knew that she sort of liked me a little bit. Um, I, I I thought she was really pretty. I didn't really like her a lot, um, but I got drunk, and I hurt somebody really really bad. I hurt somebody really really bad. And, and to give you guys an idea of what happened to me the first time I got drunk, I want to read to you what she wrote in my high school yearbook, my junior year at the end of high school. So this is actually a little embarrassing for me, but I think you might like it. Um, so this is the actual page. She asked if she could take it home, and she put like a kiss mark in the bottom right, if you can see, which is super cool, except for the content, which isn't cool. Uh, uh, but so she did the whole thing, and she titled it Jason Hey Hottie, which is also cool. Uh, cooler than the content of the rest of the thing. Uh, things have changed since high school, if you can't tell. But um, anyway, I'm going to read to you guys what she wrote. Her name is Cherie. She's fantastic. Um, I apparently wasn't. Jason, well, and some of these words are really embarrassing for me to read, but it's what she wrote. So, um, Jason, well, I don't know where to start. You are a wonderful guy. Um, you're fun to hang out with. You're artistic, energetic, good-looking, interesting, outgoing, yada, or actually, yaddy, yaddy. But you, but you know something, that same guy that has all those qualities hurts someone, a friend, pretty bad. That guy is you, and yeah, the friend is me. Of all the guys, it had to be you, a Christian, a guy who claimed to hate players, in quotes, and respect women. I don't think so, because if that were true, you wouldn't have done what you did to me. I'm not trying to be a brat, Jason. I just want you to realize something. Women are human beings, and we deserve to be treated with respect, just like everyone else, okay? You are a mass cool guy, and I love ya, but I did lose a lot of respect for you. That may not matter, but from a friend's perspective, I think it's my job to tell you this. Please don't be mad. Just understand that, yeah, sure, you hurt me, but I hope our friendship strengthens anyways. I can't write today. I just woke up, but I hope you had a great year. If you ever want to talk, I'm here for you. Have a wonderful summer. I'm looking forward to cheering for you during football season. I didn't start one play. Uh, keep your hands and lips to yourself. Keep your hands and lips to yourself unless she's someone real special. God bless, Cherie Trask. And then she left me two phone numbers. I don't know if they still work. Uh, and then she wrote sideways, which is, which is totally high school, at least it was. Hey, look, I wrote in your crack. Uh, P.S. I had a blast snowboarding. Winter, me and you, and nothing but the slope. You best watch out. Camping was fun, too. You'll have to gain enough courage to go into the water next time. It's usually more fun than looking at it, wuss. JK, I love you. Malibu will be awesome. Jesus loves you, so do I, darling. <laughs> and a kiss mark. Oh, wow. It's my high school yearbook for my junior year. 
Uh, Sheree Trask. We're friends on Instagram and Facebook and stuff. It's totally cool now, but um, 18 years later or whatever. Uh, but the very first time I got drunk, um, I made out with this girl, and, um, <clears throat> and I hurt her a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, a couple of years later, we actually had a conversation about it still, uh, and a lot of it was because of who I thought I was, who I, who I, I told her I was. Um, and alcohol wasn't at fault. It was my fault. It wasn't the alcohol's fault. The trick is, though, alcohol changes you, right? I mean, it changes what happens in your brain. I, all of a sudden, like, sitting next to a really pretty girl late at night when I'm starting to get tired, they're just our messages given by God to human beings. We are sexual beings. And normally, if I wasn't drinking, I would be able to, like, perceive and, and hear other messages that are also going on inside of me and be able to say, you know what, this probably isn't the best decision. I probably need to leave. But being drunk... The, the certain things on this side that are inhibited, whatever they were called, and the other things on this side that were not inhibited, whatever those were called. I'm totally not one of a uh, scientist person um, or whatever those people are. Um, like, I, I, I honestly couldn't think of anything else other than what's right in front of me right now. Sounds good, sure. And that was the night I learned, my first time ever being drunk, I learned what alcohol does to me. That's what it does to me what it can do to me. It can change the way I think. It can change the decisions that I normally make. It can alter my discernment process. It can make me do things that I normally wouldn't do, although it's not the alcohol's fault. It was still me doing it. The second time I got drunk, because I didn't drink again for three years after that. I hated what I did to her. It's a more involved story than that, too. It was very, very shameful for her. Um, so I didn't drink again for three years. I was terrified of myself on alcohol. Uh, until my second year of college, my sophomore year, my friend Sean Hoey, we just called him Ho, um, he, which you do, I guess, uh, he, um, he uh, did not like that I did Jesus stuff. I was trying to figure out what I believed about God. Um, Cherie said that I was a Christian guy. I was totally pretending. Um, I was going to Young Life, and I, there was really hot girls there, and I, uh, I, I just thought I needed to be uh, like a Christian guy or something. I didn't know what that meant. Um, I went to a, a, like a camp that summer, actually, that changed my life um, in a lot of ways. Um, but I was still coming into college trying to figure out what I believed about Jesus. And my friend Sean really made him mad. Like, I'd come back from like a Tuesday night worship service, and he'd often make fun of me um, and poke fun at stuff uh, all the time. And he kept saying, I just need to take you to a party. Then you don't need this Jesus stuff anymore. And I didn't do that all freshman year. And I, I felt bad as a, as a really close friend of his. Um, I felt bad that I had never gone to a party with him. And I thought, you know what? I can go to one party with him. He would feel so respected if I go to a party with him. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to parties. This is just what I did when I went to one. I've been to a number since, but, uh, but when I went to this one, this is what I did. Um, we went out and I was sitting in a living room. I, I didn't know this is what we were doing, but we sat at some other guy's living room for like two hours before we went to the party. We had like a pit stop to pre-funk. I didn't know what that was. Um, and so everybody's sitting in a room and it's completely boring. Um, like we're just sitting there not doing anything, waiting for the other party. Um, and so I was like, well, yeah, I'll drink. I don't even like what you guys are drinking, but it's so unbelievably boring that I, I will drink. And so I drank um, uh, Killian's Irish Red, two of them. And, um, and it made me feel not better. I didn't notice any chemical effect in my body. It just made me feel less awkward sitting in the room drinking with the guys rather than standing there silently wondering why everybody thinks this is fun. Um, 
And so then we went to this party, and it was a big party. There was like 150 people on the top floor of this uh, building. Um, and as I walked in, I also didn't know what a beer bong was, so I was trying to figure out why this dude had a hose going down into his mouth, and these people were standing on the toilet dumping pictures of beer down it, and I thought that was really strange. And then I walk into this room, and there's 150 people there, and it's loud, and, there's, and, I, and I'm, I don't know what I was supposed to do. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And so my friend... Sean, I call him Sean. Uh, my friend Sean, um, he and I were talking for a minute, but then he sort of peeled off and went and talked to somebody else. And I'm sort of standing by myself and saying hey to people and everybody's got, you know, blue and, blue and silver cans of some cheap beer. And everybody's got these. A lot of guys have like two, like one here and one here with one hand and another one open drinking with this one, just in case they don't have to go back through the crowd to the table back there, you know? And, uh, and, I, and I didn't think, man, these people are going to hell. Like I, I didn't, I didn't know anything about this stuff. I knew the last time I drank, I made a huge mistake with Cherie. I knew that. And after a couple, I had two beers before I went. I was 19, I think, 20 at the time. Um, and then, but pretty quickly, I started to feel an overwhelming level of awkwardness in the middle of this room with 150 people dancing, drinking, uh, talking about things that just, I didn't understand why they were interesting at all. And, and then it clicked for me. Every time people feel awkward, they sip. That's so great. Like every time somebody doesn't know what to say, they just go, and it doesn't look awkward. Like they aren't sitting there silently, not saying anything. They're drinking. And so I picked up a beer and I started just sipping. And I wasn't thinking I'll drink a lot of beers. I thought it looks less awkward for me to hold one. And so I held this beer and started drinking. An hour and a half later, I had 10 beers. Um, and I, I looked around the room and I realized, and I, I don't drink, okay? So it's 12 beers in under two hours. Uh, and I look around this room and I'm thinking every single girl in this room is unbelievably gorgeous and everything every guy is talking about is amazing and this is the best night of my life but, but there's something by God's grace that reminded me an hour and a half ago I did not think that was true and I don't think the room has changed that much and, and for just a split second that occurred to me I honestly think that if I had stayed for just five seconds longer I would have gone right past that and continued to stay there that night but in that moment, I panicked. <laughs> this is more embarrassing than the yearbook thing. And I ran. I literally ran. Like I ran out of the house and I sprinted uh, down Greek Row at the University of Washington. I sprinted down Greek Row and I'd never, um, I don't know if you guys have, and you probably don't want to admit it in this context, maybe. I'll admit it for you. I had never been drunk that much. And so running drunk was a new experience for me. And that was really funny, I thought. And so I was giggling all the way back to my dorm <laughs> while I was sprinting as fast as I can because I knew if I stopped, I would go back and try to hook up with somebody. And so I literally was like sprinting back to my dorm and then giggling the whole way. I, I sort of wish I could see it third person. You know what I mean? Um, but, but that night, so like in high school, when I, when I, the first time I got drunk, um, I, I, was, I sort of saw what could happen to me drunk. And then in college, when I got drunk, I saw what was happening to other people. Like it happened to me too, but I, I, some of this stuff started to sink in and, and, and make some sense. That, that alcohol not only affects our decisions, but it affects the way we act in community. It affects what we do in community. It affects the way we see each other in community and these other things. And, and it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Why is it so big of a deal? Well, it decreases awkwardness for sure. For sure. I don't have to focus on so much external stimuli, all these other thoughts that might be plaguing me every day. I can actually pay attention to just one thing. I'm less stressed and less anxious. I wrote the word down because glutamate transmission is suppressed. Totally know it. Um, I also feel a sense of clarity and depth. 
for whatever is right in front of me and whatever I am focused on and thinking about. If you guys have ever been in a room with a drunk person and you're not drunk, it's insane how deep they can go about nothing. Like it really is. And, when you, and if you're drunk with a drunk person, you guys are having like a conversation that you don't understand why it's not changing the world. But if you just take two steps back and you look, you guys are all laughing. Wait, like, I'm so, okay, a lot of you know this. Um, if, you, if you just take a step back and you looked at it and you weren't drunk, it is the most absurd conversation ever, right? But when you're in it, you don't feel that. And, and like me at a party, it helps reduce the sphere of information radically. The sphere of information that you're dealing with on a daily basis, if you're drunk, that reduces dramatically. I felt like I was able to be very present and I think in an anxious world, in a lonely world, in a world where we don't know what to feel or to think, I don't know how much that sounds like your world, but I know a lot of you. If your world is riddled with anxiety and loneliness, and I'm not sure how to feel or what to think, and I have too many thoughts, I don't know what to do with these things, alcohol definitely offers a short-term, even if it's messy, it offers a short-term solution to that. It's a big deal, not only because it does all that, but because of the effect it has on so many of our families. So many of you in this room, I don't even need to know, just statistically speaking, so many of you in this room have alcoholic parents. And you know what that does to your family. In some families, the kind of abuse that's caused. In some, in some families, the kind of neglect that happens because of it. In all families where that happens, the financial toll that that takes on a family, which affects every other decision in the family. You guys know that. From your own experiences with alcohol, you probably can know how big of a deal it is. But just to give you some objective numbers, $90 billion a year is spent on alcohol in the United States. Over that now, 94, maybe more. The last stat I read was 94. $94 billion a year is spent on alcohol. That's just money buying alcohol. $53 billion a year is spent on costs because of poor decisions made by underage drinking. $220 billion total in 2005, so I don't know if, the, if it's increased or decreased, but in 2005, $220 billion total were spent on costs related to alcohol abuse and dependence. 50% of all homicides are alcohol-related, 40% of all assaults. 500 million workdays are lost every year because somebody is hungover or drunk. 500 million lost workdays. 80% of college students drink, 40% of college students binge drink, which is defined as four to five drinks, depending if you're a guy or a girl, in under two hours. Once a month, 40% of college students do that. 1,800 college students die from alcohol-related injuries that were accidents every year. 1,800 college students. 100,000 college students a year were so drunk that they can't remember if they consented to the sex that they had or not. 100,000 college students a year. 97,000 were victims of alcohol-related rape or sexual assault. 600,000 college students are unintentionally injured every year because of alcohol. 700,000 are assaulted by someone who was drinking. This is a substance that is abused, and it is a substance that is misused a lot. It is not a very neutral topic in our society, in our culture, in our nation, on this campus. It is used and misused a lot at tremendous expense. So why don't we as Christians, if you're a Christian, why don't we just reject it entirely? Why don't we abstain from alcohol and never drink it? 
If something is habitually so misused and abused in a culture, why do we keep messing with it? Why do we slow dance with it? Why do we put it on our shelves and in our corners? Why do we watch advertisements that have it? Why do we entertain alcohol so much if it's like that? Shouldn't we just abstain from alcohol? This, by the way, is the number one reason, um, that's the number one argument by people who argue that we should abstain from alcohol because of the tremendous negative effects that it has in our world, in our families, in our societies. There's other arguments that come up about um, abstaining from alcohol. You can ask those um, in the Q&A downstairs. Those are a little brief, more brief. Um, so why don't we do away with it? Think about sex. Think of how many terrible acts of violence and how many relational fractures are caused by the abuse or misuse of sex in this world, in our nation, in our lives. Should we just stop having sex? I mean, it's abused a lot. I mean, that's a huge understatement, okay? Sex is misused and abused all the time. Should we as Christians advocate that no more should Christians be involved in sex ever? And in somewhere less than 70 to 80 years, there will be no more Christians in the world. And we should advocate for that, right? Because sex is misused and abused. And if it's been abused so much, let's throw it out and never do it. No, we fight for sex. If you know God, if you have read the Bible, if you have ever, if we should fight for sex to be something that is good, glorifying to God and good for this world. The world should thank people for the way Christians have sex. It's not happening because we're not doing it well, but we ought to. We don't need to throw it out. What about money? Think of how many problems are caused by the abuse and misuse of money. Holy cow. The love of money. Spending too much money. Should we then say that no Christian should ever deal with money? Ever? Look, money is abused and misused so much. We have debts and deficits in this country that we cannot pay off in the next decade. Maybe the next 40 to 50 years. And that's not just a federal government's problem. In this way, our government is perfectly representative of the people. Our families and individuals in this country carry enormous amounts of debt. We spend far too much. We think we, are, we deserve far more than we have. It's a crazy idea. I mean, disposable income is a new idea in the history of the world, and we all think we're entitled to it. It's crazy. We misuse and abuse it so much, and it affects everything. So let's not worry about it anymore. You guys reject money altogether. Never deal with it. Never talk about it. Never make it. Wish that the world would do away with any form of currency. Of course we don't do that. What we long for, what we try to teach, what we try to do, what we try to live out, what we ask God for is that he would teach us how we might use money for his glory and for the earth's good. That the way that I, as a follower of Jesus, as somebody united with Christ, that the way that I use money would bring about flourishing in the world. That's what I long for. The same is true with alcohol. Our sin with alcohol has not won so great a victory that God, in this case, is not able to redeem it. He doesn't look out over all the world and go, I can redeem anything, but I can't redeem that. This is one area where you guys have sinned so much that it's impossible for me to do anything good with that. Our God is a redeeming God. He is not a God that likes to throw things away. Alcohol is abused or misused 
to an unbelievable extent, which in my mind makes me consider, consider what might it look like in the world for alcohol to be in the hands of people redeemed by God? What might that look like? I'm not telling you right now that you should drink. I'm only saying that its misuse is not enough cause to throw it away. Just because it's been abused does not mean, and you don't have license all of a sudden to say, people shouldn't drink. But if God has told us outright, you shouldn't drink alcohol, then we need to obey that. And we should understand because of what we know about Jesus. I don't know why you're following God or worrying about obeying God if you don't know Jesus in this way, okay? But if God has asked me to obey him, then I trust that I, at some point I will understand the tremendous kind of blessing that comes about from him giving me this kind of law. That is the kind of God we follow. If you don't believe that's true about God, I would encourage you to take a long look at Jesus and why in the world you follow him. But what I wanna do right now is I want to look through a sweep of scripture. There are um, a lot of passages in the scripture. I'm gonna be selective because there's by one count 247 references to wine or strong drink in the Bible uh, with something like 16% of them being negative like warnings against drunkenness, other things will come across some of those. Um, 25% of them sort of neutral, like somebody decides they're going, they're fasting for a while from alcohol or the Levitical priests were called to serve in a capacity where while they're doing that, they're not supposed to drink, sort of not negative or positive. We're not really sure what to do with it. 59% of the passages are largely are positive for alcohol, but it's not like we get a vote. It's not like we go 59% to 25 and 16, so that wins. That's not the way it works. But I wanna look through some passages of scripture. I'm not gonna stop long, I just want you guys to see the way alcohol is talked about in the Bible, all right? So would you put up Genesis 27, 28 for me? This is Isaac to Jacob, who's um, uh, tricking him into a blessing. Isaac says this to Jacob, may God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. This is God, this is Isaac telling his son, this is the blessing that I wanna give you, part of the inheritance that I wanna give you, this is some of it. Isaac thinks that it's a blessing for his son to have wine. Let's go to the next one. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, 9 through 12. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. This is now God speaking to the people of Israel. This is the Lord's voice, not Isaac's voice. Know therefore the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands and decrees and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. His love, he will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine, and olive oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks and the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. So now God here is telling Israel that he is going to bless them with wine. That the people of Israel should receive an abundance of grapes that they press in a wine press and make alcoholic wine, somewhere between six and 12% alcohol content. 12 to 24 proof, if you know anything about that, which I'm sure you do, uh, that he's saying, I want you to consider this Israel a blessing from me. Let's go to the next one. Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 26. This is God telling the Israelites, once a year, I want you to do this with your tithe. Once a year, do this with your tithe. 
the, the crops, the, the animals, the things that they're supposed to set aside for God. What's up, Matt? Hey, thanks for waving. Uh, be sure to set aside a tenth of all. Matt, do you know that this is something that God asked the Israelites to do with their money and their, their tithe? Think about this. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil and the firstborn of your herds and the flocks and the presence of the Lord your God at the new place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. So that you may, all, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. So set aside this 10%. Set aside this tithe and then eat it. Set aside this alcohol, 10% of it, this tithe of it, and drink it. I'm commanding you to do this, Israel, once a year. But if that place is too distant, if the place that I will show you is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God because you have so much and you cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose and to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Then use your silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, which means alcoholic drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Do you know that God commanded his people to drink? Let's go to the next one. So those verses that we just read would, would indicate that we should understand alcohol, at least in some context for the people of Israel, to be a good thing, to be a blessing from a father to his son, from God to his people, to be something that they rejoice and remember God's faithfulness with. Every single feast that the Israelites had, alcohol was expected to be present. Every single one. But then we see some other kinds of verses. Would you go to Proverbs 23? There's a question I hope somebody asks about Jesus in the Q&A from this, actually. But Proverbs 23, 19 through 21. Listen, my son, and be wise. This is a father to a son. Set your heart on the right path. What's the right path? Well, do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness or, or sleepiness or laziness or laying in bed all day clothes them in rags. What is the path that it's right? Do not be among these people that drink too much wine. Do not join them if they gorge themselves on meat, gluttons and drunkards. That's sort of a negative view here of drunkenness, of gluttony. Would you go to the next one in Ephesians 5, 18? Do you not get drunk on wine? It's pretty direct, which leads to debauchery, poor decisions. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It would be really fascinating if, and, and wonderful if all of the reasons why if some of you get drunk often, if some of you long for and look forward to Friday nights, Saturday nights, Thursday nights, whatever night the drinking starts, uh, like if some of you are looking forward to those days to drink, it would be wonderful if you knew God in such a way that you would look forward to him like that. Do not get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Would you put up Romans 13, 13? Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or in debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Let's behave this way, Romans. Jews and Gentiles to the church of Rome, Paul says. Act as if you're in the daylight all the time. Don't act like you're drunk. Don't get drunk. Leave that there just for a minute. So this speaks to these last couple things and so many verses like it, you guys, uh, something like 19%. Um, 
of the Bible, of the verses on uh, wine and, and strong drink speak to drunkenness, being led by alcohol. There's many times specifically in the Proverbs where, where somebody getting up in the morning desiring alcohol or finishing a day of work and looking forward to the drink at night is equated in the same way with drunkenness. You are going to this thing to indulge in this thing, to make this thing the, the, the desire of your heart and the thing that captivates you. There's this fascinating passage in the Proverbs where it talks about, uh, it's sort of picturing uh, somebody looking at a glass of wine and being fascinated by the color red and, and, and loving the sparkles that might come up if, it's, uh, if there's any bubbles that come up in it and loving and imagining the feeling of it going down their throat. And if you don't struggle with alcoholism or you've never gotten drunk, that sort of, that may sound silly, but for those of you that look forward to drinking so much, you know what it's like to look forward to a cold beer or to a bottle of wine or to whiskey or rum or your, whatever your drink of choice is. There are very strong negative statements about some of this, of looking forward to it and imagining it. I can't wait until Friday or tomorrow or, or that week or spring break or summer. Friends, let me be clear. Drunkenness on alcohol is not the way of life God has laid out for us. It is not the way to abundant life. The Bible is unambiguously clear about this. There's no gray in that. So we have some scriptures pointing us to the fact that alcohol can be a blessing and others saying drunkenness is sinful. But I don't think it's quite as simple as that. We're promised in the prophets, I don't know if you know this, we're gonna read one in a second. We're promised in the prophets that in the new heaven and the new earth, Isaiah, Amos, Micah, probably some other ones, um, that in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to have abundant wine. Do you know that? Can you imagine drinking a beer or a glass of wine or uh, a, a glass of whiskey with Jesus? The prophets would encourage you to do that. To imagine drinking in the new heaven and the new earth with no more sin. Would you put up Isaiah 25, 6? On this mountain, and the mountain, uh, if you're reading Isaiah, is, is, is uh, Mount Zion. It's, it's, it's this image of when God actually does away with all the evil in the world and, and makes his world new. This city that will not be shaken, this place where, where the people of God will build, will rebuild old ruins. He will, another passage that, that mirrors this almost exactly would say that they, there was no more death after this. This is a picture of the life to come after the judgment of Christ. When everybody is resurrected and judged and separated and people will live forever in the new heaven and the new earth, then something like this will happen. The Lord Almighty will prepare a banquet, a, will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. He is saving the choicest wine for the end, the finest, the aged wine and lots of it which speaks to another story it reminds me of. This is where things get complicated in John chapter two. I'm not gonna put it up there. It takes, it's, a, it's a little bit long, but um, in John chapter two, Jesus shows up at this wedding. Um, it's the first miracle we see in the gospel of John um, and they run out of wine at the end of this, this wedding celebration. They had all this wine, they ran out. Jesus's mother goes to him and says, would you make more wine? And he has this strange response to her because he doesn't want anybody to know that he's the Messiah quite yet. He doesn't want to reveal this stuff. I also just wonder, because of how much this, is an, this uh, seems to be a foreshadowing of what's going to come in the new heavens and the new earth where the finest wine is saved for last, and how much the covenant that he institutes with the church has wine as the very central element there. 
And how much when, when he sits on the cross and he has sour wine on his lips, I just wonder when he's being asked to turn water into wine, how many of those things are on his mind? And so he's thinking, I'm not ready for all this yet. I'm not ready for giving my life up yet. This is not the time or the hour, he says. But the wine had all run out, which means what? If everybody has had a lot of wine, there's at least some people buzzed, at least. Jesus makes 180 more gallons, 180. And the, guy's like, the guy who, who drinks it first says, holy cow, you saved the best wine for last. Jesus didn't say, mother, they've had enough. They are buzzed, which is totally fine. They're just not drunk. You know the difference, mom. He didn't say that to her. It's a pot shot. Uh, but he, he didn't say that to her. He didn't say, mom, has everybody had just two drinks? Because anybody who's had two, put a wristband on them or stamp their hand or something. Like, make sure we take their keys. They don't drive camels home. Like these people like need to make sure that's not written down. That was terrible. Uh, but uh, like the ones written down were better. But anyway, um, but, but in that setting, he doesn't seem to sort of, we don't at least have any record of him caring a ton about the legalistic morality of this whole thing. It's at a wedding feast, drink. The wine's run out. I'm God. Let me make some more. And I'm going to make really, really good wine. We don't see Jesus sort of being really worried. Ah, it seems like they probably had enough. They already went out of the wine. I don't know. That's not what we see. Which, man, that brings up a ton of questions for me. Not to mention all the times Jesus gets accused of hanging out with drunkards and gluttons. Hangs out with them so much, spends so much time with them, drinks wine himself, eats all this food. And people sort of wonder, are you a drunkard? Are you a glutton? His friends, the same friends that wrote these stories would say, we were with him the whole time. He never sinned. He never sinned. But it's fascinating to me. What's everybody supposed to do, Jesus, when you make 180 gallons of wine? after they've already been drinking for a week. Can they have more? I mean, you made it now, so they, can they have that wine? Or are they supposed to cut themselves off? Who's cutting them off? What are the rules here, Jesus? Psalm 104 even says something really intense, I think, for some of us. Psalm 104 says that God makes wine specifically to gladden the heart, <laughs> which causes fits in some people. Because some of us like to argue against any substances that affect us or change or alter our moods or states. Brothers and sisters, friends, every single thing you do changes and alters your state. Everything. Everything you drink, everything you eat changes you at a biological level every single time. Your mood is altered by every single thing you do. There is no substance you will take into your body that doesn't alter you. Which I'm not saying then eat as much uh, sugar as you want, drink as much caffeine or any other way you take it in as you want, drink as much. I'm not saying that. I'm saying an argument saying I stay away from any substances that alter my mood. I'm like, that's impossible. Quite literally, the lighting of this room is altering your mood. Everything alters you. Everything changes you. Synapses are firing at every second. Neural pathways are dying and being made every single second. Everything's going to affect you. And here, the psalmist in 104 says, well, let me tell you why God made wine. He actually made it to make your hearts glad. Your mood was supposed to be affected in that way. That's why he wanted alcohol to be made, was a substance that was supposed to make you glad. I just find that interesting. And in history, abstinence from, um, from alcohol is a, is a very rare thing. It's not, there's some monks and some other people that sort of separate themselves. They also are doing other things that I don't see a lot of people abstaining from alcohol doing. Uh, living in the desert, selling all their belongings, whipping their backs, spending 30 to 40 days in prayer on their knees. Um, I don't see them doing that, but those people sometimes did abstain. But in the history of the church, especially in the past 500 years, to show you how recent it is, 
I mean, uh, Guinness was actually made at specifically as an act of worship to God. Whether it is or not, I'm not arguing. There are Christians who made Guinness because they thought they wanted to worship God through the art of making beer. A Baptist minister of all people, a Baptist minister is credited with inventing bourbon. He was at least the first one to put it in oak barrels if, or, or one of the first ones if he didn't invent it. That's sort of skeptical. But unarguably, there was a Baptist minister at the very beginning of the bourbon uh, explosion, which is really interesting given uh, what, if some of you have grown up in Baptist churches, some of what uh, Baptist theology talks about today in local churches. John Calvin, who was one of the, the giants of the Reformation, had a stipend at a church in Geneva. Had a, I'm working on this with our board. He had a stipend of 250 gallons of wine a year into his church contract. I'm going to be the pastor of your church, but here's one of my requirements. 250 gallons a year I get to buy for my consumption and for friends and parties that I have at my house. It's a relatively rare thing to find Christians abstaining from alcohol until really recently, the past hundred years in, in America in particular. So even though, but even though drunkenness is prohibited scripturally, is it okay? I mean, if I'm over 21, can I just, is it okay if I drink? Like, what's the big deal if this is a relatively new thing, you know? Well, easy, you guys. It's really simply, it's easy. If God, since God has asked you to respect the authorities of the land that you're in, since he says he's established those and you need to be subject to the law of the land, more than that, actually, you should be praying for your president and for your governors and for your mayors, for me, for Kirsten, for your interns. You should pray for anybody over you in authority, always. You should be doing these things. But you need to respect those people too. And since if you're under 21, drinking is a sin, unless you're in Tennessee and in the context of a religious service, which doesn't mean wine at a wedding, which is still against the law in Tennessee, but it, it does mean that you can actually take communion if it's alcohol. You begin to get into really tricky instances in the nine states that disallow alcohol, even at religious ceremonies. What do you do if you're in a Catholic mass or an Anglican Eucharistic service and they serve wine? It's technically illegal for you to drink it there. I don't know what you do, but it's actually a little bit easier if you're in Georgia where you can drink on private property that doesn't sell alcohol as long as your parents give you the alcohol and are with you while you drink it. Or you can go to South Carolina, where as long as you're in private property that isn't selling alcohol, you can drink alcohol even if your parents aren't there and they don't do anything there. You guys all might want to go to college in South Carolina. Uh, but that's, that's totally legal. And all of that's fine, right? That's not a sin well, unless you're being disobedient to your parents and doing that. And then if you're obedient to your parents and respecting them and honoring them, then it's probably okay unless you're spending money in a way that you probably shouldn't be spending money. Because then you're not being a good steward of some of the stuff that God has given you. Or potentially if you're acting different than you're normally acting because I know God wants you to have integrity and if you're not living with a certain kind of integrity, then that surely is sinful too. Or if you're causing somebody maybe to stumble in any kind of way that like is, it inhibits their understanding of God or violates their own conscience. Or really quite frankly, if, if whatever I do with alcohol, even if it's totally legal, if it doesn't glorify God and isn't good for the people around me, then it's a sin. But so other than that, you're good. It's really easy. But then remember, of course, the sobering statistics in our country and how dangerous alcohol is and what it does to your brain and what it does to your decision-making and what it does to the social circles that you're in, the way it changes the chemical reactions and electric impulses in our brain. And pretty quickly, I find that it becomes really difficult to chart out exactly when and where you can and can't drink all the time. 
to come up with this list that I could roll out and run down this, this hallway here, aisle, and just have a list after list after list of if this, then that, then this, then that, then this, then I can drink. But if this changes and that changes, and then this does this thing to that thing, then I can't drink. And I could keep going and going and going, and you will still come up with new instances where you are once again gonna have to stop and say, what am I supposed to do here? With all, well, for some of us, I know this is very infuriating. We want clarity on rules, right? Who wants to play a guessing game? <laughs> Who wants to wonder if this is okay or not? We want law. With all 247 references to wine and strong drink in the scriptures, one thing that you will discover is that finding rules for every situation will fail you. So what are you supposed to do? Would you put up uh, the Galatians passage for me? If you're concerned with rules, I want you to think about this. Before the coming of this faith, Paul here is talking about faith in Jesus. Before Jesus has come and we've had faith in him based on what we've seen him do and heard him say. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian. The law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now, this, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. If what you're concerned with are rules, you can, can you just leave that up for a while, actually? Um, thank you. Um, if what you're concerned with are rules, I want to tell you that they will never produce righteousness. Ever. Drinking, friends, does not mean you're free. Drinking does not mean you're free. And not drinking, like the people who drink, does not mean that you're righteous. Laws don't do that. That's never what they've done. That's not why God gave them. They don't actually produce in us righteousness. The limit, or they limit the extent of our sin, and they reveal our sin. This is what they do. A speed limit doesn't make safe drivers. That's not what the law, that's not what the speed limit does. It doesn't make everybody a safe driver. It limits how stupid we can be if we're bad drivers. And it also reveals when I've broken the law. But I can drive under the speed limit and be a terrible driver. Do you see what I'm saying? The speed limit in and of itself as a pretty clear, unambiguous law does not make me a good driver. Does it limit things? Does it sort of around our city and in our nation serve as some kind of like a fence of sorts, a guardian maybe, hemming in the extent through which we can kill each other with our automobiles and allowing the cops and, or, or maybe each other or something, like my wife does this with me all the time when I'm driving. She's like, you need to slow down a little bit. And most of the time I say, thank you. And, um, and when that happens, like, like the law that's there is to actually, it doesn't make me a good driver. It just reveals sin and limits the extent of my sin. If what I want is righteousness, I need more than the law. If I assault somebody, I break the law. That's a pretty good law. If I hurt somebody physically, and I shouldn't have, if I initiate this and I assault somebody, I probably will go to jail. That's a really, really good law. But if I don't, if I just go around my life not assaulting people, that doesn't mean that I'm actually loving people. I cannot break the law and still not be righteous. You see what I'm getting at? If I love people though, if I loved everybody that I interacted with, 
I don't really need the law. That's not saying that the law isn't good. Why don't I need the law if I'm loving everybody? Because I'm not going to go assaulting people. If I'm a really, really good driver, I will drive at a speed all the time that is appropriate for the conditions, concerned about the safety of people around me and the reliability of my automobiles, if you've ever been in a car with me. Like, these sorts of things, I will pay attention to these things and be a good driver. I don't actually need laws for that if I am righteous. Laws only make sense when people break them or where people break them. I don't know if you drinking or not drinking in and of itself is a good thing. I don't know. If you're under 21, it's a sin. You're breaking the law. And downstairs, we can talk about, if you want to, in the Q&A, whether the law's a good law or a bad law or whatever else. I don't know. I know some of the things it does in your heart and in my heart when we begin to break the law. The way we begin to disrespect our authorities, the way we begin to care less about the world around us. And if it's so important to you to have a, a drop of alcohol before you're 21 to prove a point, I, I just don't understand the priorities. Well, actually, I do, unfortunately. But there's better ones that you could have. But let's say you're over 21. Those are way better conversations. Because <laughs> now we're actually going to be talking about what does it look like to drink alcohol or not drink alcohol like a son or daughter of God. I don't know if you drinking or not drinking is a good thing in and of itself. I don't know if it's a sin. Because what God wants for you is to honor him in all that you do, to love him with all that you have. Under 21, over 21, after a breakup, on spring break, before or after you sign contracts about drinking, in everything you do, honor him. He wants you and me in Christ to act like sons and daughters, to be people who don't need a law written down on a piece of paper or a tablet of stone because it's written in our hearts, to be people who don't need to be told what to do or told to do this or that because the kinds of things that we're doing and the kinds of things we want to do are the very things that God would want for us. I started tonight by talking about Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might discern the will of God and know what is good and acceptable and perfect. Alcohol, I think, I think it's true. I think it helps us to think clearly. A lot of alcohol especially helps us think clearly about nothing for a short time. I really do believe that God would have us think clearly about everything all the time. And I, I, um, the call to worship team was talking about Psalm 139, which ends with, God, search me and know me. Try me and see if there's any way that's grievous in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. All the stuff I'm talking about, all of it, all of it is assuming that you actually want God to lead you in an everlasting way. If you don't, then none of this is gonna make much sense. Do you actually want God to make your mind new? Do you want him to renew your mind? Do you believe that that's possible? That he could take the way you think about this world, that you think about yourself and other people and he can create new thoughts in you, that you would actually be somebody who walks around this planet knowing the will of God rather than sitting here wondering, I don't know how everybody else figures out the will of God. What in the heck? Here's how. Let your mind be renewed by Christ. You will find, brothers and sisters, that there are times for drinking and times for abstaining. I do. 
And I only know the difference by knowing Jesus and following him. I just quite frankly cannot list out for you all of the possible variables to answer every single situation. And quite frankly, I would love it if you wanted something more than that. I would love it if you didn't just want a guardian, something that kept you safe while you were young and immature, a fence around the yard because you didn't know how to play in the street. I would love it if you, just, if you grew, if you matured in such a way that you said, Father, God, I want more than just boundaries and laws. I want you to take the fences down and let me live like a son or a daughter who knows the Father's will and begins to live that out in this world. I don't need to be afraid about abstaining or drunkenness. I'm not going to do those things. I'm going to be like Christ in this world. I'm not going to drink a beer just like Jesus did. And I'm going to drink one just like Jesus did or would. I hope that, that one of the things the Spirit of God is doing in your minds and hearts is, is creating in you a desire to live like that rather than somebody who has to go around continuing to guess what the guardian is, what the law is, what the thing is that just keeps me from messing up too much rather than a desire to be the kind of person that lives a righteous life for God's glory and for the good of everybody around you all the time. In your drinking, in your eating, because this is far bigger than drinking, in your drinking, in your eating, in your spending, in your relaxing, in your thinking, in the feelings that you dwell on and the memories that you choose to meditate on, the hopes that you fixate on, in everything you do, do everything with thanksgiving and to the glory and praise of God. Everything. There's a part of me that in a conversation about alcohol, I didn't even want to talk about alcohol because I go, this isn't about alcohol. It's about everything. Everything you do, do for the glory of God. You don't get Thursday nights off. And that's, I'm not trying to lay on you a moral requirement to not do that. I'm assuming that you want to, to experience the love and life that Jesus has to offer you. I'm assuming that you want to love your roommates and the friends that you're hanging out with, that you want to honor your parents, which are huge assumptions, y'all. Those are huge assumptions. And if you don't feel that way, I'm not trying to say right now, shame on you. I hope that you come to know Jesus who promises a much better life than one night being drunk. I hope that you come to know Jesus who promises you much more satisfaction than a, than a, a room full of beer or much more peace and contentment with who you are than somebody who militantly abstains from all alcohol. I won't have alcohol at my wedding. I won't drink ever. I don't do that. I don't think Christians should. I don't think Christian leaders should. And I want to be a Christian leader or whatever you say. Jesus can bring in more peace than all that too. He really, really, really can. The kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, is not about eating and drinking. It's a kingdom of righteousness and of peace and of joy in the Holy Spirit. I hope when you think about alcohol, you're thinking, how can it be used by my abstaining or my drinking for joy and peace in the kingdom? If you're drinking or you're abstaining is doing these things and you're obeying God in all you do, then I am 100% confident that you do these things knowing the favor of the Lord. Right after this, there's a ton of questions left open, I know. Maybe from the last couple weeks too. Even if you weren't here, you can still come downstairs. Uh, questions about pain and suffering in this world. How could a good God allow such pain and suffering stuff? What's my purpose? Why did God make us? Or anything about drinking. There's some questions from Romans 14 I didn't talk about. Stuff about Jesus hanging out with 
drunkards and gluttons that I didn't talk about. If you want to talk about those things or ask questions, please come downstairs and hang out with us. But let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would um, search the hearts of, of all of us in this room, that you would try us and know our thoughts, that we would recognize and know that if you are who you say you are, then you must know the words in our mouths before they come out, and you must know the thoughts that are in the very tips of our brains. There's nowhere we can hide from you or run and you love us. That you would long for alcohol not to be something that is abused in this world, but something that is meant for our joy. And that places in life where we've experienced shame and brokenness, those are the places where you want us someday to experience peace and throw parties. But I pray as you search the hearts and minds of all of us in this room, I pray that you would reveal in us ways that are contrary to your kingdom, that are against you, and you would lead us in an everlasting way. That you'd make us want to be people who want the kingdom of God to be about so much more than eating and drinking. You make us people that long for joy and peace and righteousness to reign at our parties, in our dorm rooms, in our family's living rooms, in the car rides late at night, early in the morning, spring breaks, summers. We need your spirit to do that stuff in us, God, or we will continue to run toward everything else that offers us a night of rest and break from the anxieties and worries of this world. Please reveal yourself to us. Please show us who you are that we would long for you and want to be um, drunk on your spirit more than drunk on anything else. In the name of your son, I pray these things. Amen.